Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his sons ask for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Now you may be seated. I'm just testing this out right now as I talk. Can you hear me in the balcony? I'm getting good thumbs up. Wonderful. Thank you. Can you hear me on the floor? Good. Good, good, good. Well, since we're talking about this amazing subject of prayer tonight, let's one more time pray. Father, as we open your word uh, to this portion of Luke, there is much uh, that could be taught here tonight. But Lord, we ask that uh, you would edit whatever needs to be edited out that we may hear what you have to say to us. So would you inspire the words of mine? May they be your words and not mine. May you give us ears to hear. In Jesus' good and powerful name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Tonight we do, we come to the topic of prayer as we're going through Luke's gospel. And we have to remember that prayer is much more of a privilege than it is a duty. So many times when we think about prayer, we think about our prayer lives, we think about it in terms of, oh, I've got to pray, or I need to pray more. And we forget the fact that this is a great privilege of ours that we have, that we get to go before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and actually have a conversation expecting him to hear and then also expecting that he will answer the prayers that we are asking and even speak back to us. Uh, That in and of itself is an amazing thing. We also forget that prayer is one of the greatest ministries that we have. So many times we use prayer as a kind of an emergency hotline, if you will, that when things go bad or things are going wrong and we need God to do something in some way, we say, oh, well, maybe it's time for us to pray. But obviously prayer, according to Jesus, should not be our last resort, but it should be our first reaction to the things that we're experiencing in life. And as we come to this text... Uh, If you are very familiar with Matthew's text or if you're a part of traditional worship or even worship here on Wednesdays, we normally pray the Matthean 
text, if you will, the Lord's Prayer, the version of the Lord's Prayer, the one that we find in Matthew's Gospel. And this one obviously uh, is a little different, and we see that. It seems to be edited in some ways. Again, it says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And then it simply concludes with, for we ourselves uh, forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Right? And so, again, if you're familiar with the Lord's prayers, we just prayed a little bit earlier, or with Matthew's version, it seems to be a little bit short. Uh, and I think there's some reasons for that, uh, in particular for Luke. We have to remember that Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. That is very important. Uh, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, a very Jewish audience, and that's the reason why he starts with a genealogy. But Luke's gospel uh, is, has a, a different ethereal audience in mind, and it's written to Gentiles. And the Gentiles that Luke is writing to would be very much familiar with the goings-on within the thing called the Roman Empire. And that is what they would be most familiar with. And so as you look through the prayer itself, it starts with this, this simple line of, Father, hallowed be your name, and that would be revolutionary to a Gentile in many ways. Uh, because it was Romulus, one of the founders of Rome, this legendary founder of Rome, you know, his title was the father of the fatherland. And so for a Gentile, they understood who the father was, and it certainly wasn't a Jewish person walking around in the first century. It was the man or one of the men who founded what became a large and vast empire. Or the line, your kingdom come. Of course, the Roman military was huge. They were very militaristic. And they understand what it meant for a kingdom to come into an area. They understood what it meant for a kingdom to rule an area. But all of a sudden, now Jesus is teaching them to pray for God's kingdom to come. And again, Luke writing to a Gentile audience, this means something very different to them. Or give us each day our daily bread. One of the things that was classic about the Romans was that they were very materialistic. They didn't want to depend on anyone else as much as they could. And if they did depend on anybody, they would depend on the Roman government to provide what they needed. Forgive us our sins. That's a very foreign concept because you really don't have such thing as a forgiveness of sins, especially when it comes to sins against the state, and that would be the Roman state. Instead, you just had punishment, which um, the idea of the word indebted being used in the next line, we understand that as a sin debt, right? We are indebted to God, but I think that word is used intentionally there because, again, if you were in Rome, you would understand a debtor's prison if you could not pay a debt. And the idea of forgiving that, again, would not be a part of their thinking. And then the last line, lead us not into temptation, again, this is something that Romans would understand because you can translate the line, let us not be subject to a trial. And again, that's what temptation gets at. Lord, don't let us go through trials in life, those that are tempting us to walk away from you in one way or another. Um, and again, if you were in a Roman context, if you were a Gentile, you would understand being subject to a trial because that happens to be one of the things that the Romans were famous for. But I think something else theologically is going on here in um, Luke's gospel as it comes to the Lord's Prayer. If you look throughout Luke's gospel, you'll see that he prayed 11 times or is referenced to have prayed. In one case, he said, Peter, I prayed for you. Um, again, he's praying or prayed 11 times throughout the gospel. 
And so we see that at his baptism in Luke 3.21. We see it in the wilderness in Luke 5.16. We see it whenever he, right before he chooses his disciples in 6.12. Uh, we see it before he predicts his death in 9.18. We see it in the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke 9.28. When the 72 return, we looked at that last week in 17 through 24. We see it right here before this text. He's praying and the disciples come up and ask him to teach him, teach them to pray. Uh, we also see it, uh, he prays for Peter in Luke 22:32. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane in 22:38-46. He prays for his enemies in Luke 23:34, and then, of course, on the cross in Luke 23:46. And a part of what I think Luke is doing in highlighting these particular parts of the Lord's Prayer, which is obviously a prayer that Jesus would have taught on several occasions to different audiences, but we get this conversation with his disciples uh, here. Uh, I think what he's doing is he's tracking Jesus' prayer life throughout the gospel as he has tracked it there through the 11 occasions in which he prays. So you think of Father, he's praying to the Father. Well, we see that revealed at his baptism. Or hallowed be your name, we see this moment happen on the Mount of Transfiguration. Your kingdom come. He's praying that when he's, right before he chooses the disciples that would follow him or when the disciples, the 72, return. The kingdom is expanding. Give us this day our daily bread. Again, Jesus was praying in the wilderness and it was God who provided bread for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those. We see him praying for Peter. We know Peter's story and all that he was going through there, especially toward the end of Jesus' life. Jesus is also praying for his own enemies. He's uh, modeling that for the people. And then, of course, lead us not into temptation. Jesus is praying for that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying for that in many ways on the cross as he's dying for our sins. But one of the things that is very important to understand, I think, about Luke's version of the prayer is that there are no additions to the prayer in any way, uh, and there's no alterations to what we see in Matthew's gospel. Um, and when it comes to the topic of Jesus in prayer, just from a high level, uh, I would put four things before you. One is that when it, come, when it comes to the topic of Jesus in prayer, it always involves in intimacy. Jesus prayed as a son to the Father. And so whenever he talks about prayer, he does not talk about it in a mechanical way, but he talks about it in a very intimate way, in a family way. He is the son talking to his father. The second word I would put before you is the word insistent. One of the things that we see through Jesus' ministry, both in his example and what he's teaching, is that he is insisting on the fact that God is the source of everything that we need, and he's the source of all good things that come into our life. And so he, that is one of the things that he's absolutely emphatic about as he talks about and demonstrates prayer in the Gospels. The third word I would put before you is the word intensity. Intensity. We see Jesus praying with passion. And that, that I think, is a challenge to us because many times we, we, we pray, we go to pray, we're kind of fumbling for words, but Jesus was passionately praying, uh, and, and not in just in a mechanical way again, but he's pouring his heart out because of the intimate relationship he has with the Father as the Son. He's pouring his heart out to God in these moments uh, in which he is really desperately seeking an answer or guidance in some way. The fourth word I would put before you is the word imitation. And again, obviously that's what Jesus has been doing for the disciples and he's teaching it here to them. 
And in many ways, what Jesus is imitating for them, what he wants them to mimic, and that gets at, uh, that's a very important word throughout Paul's writing, that we mimic him, we imitate him. Uh, And what Jesus is pointing to here is the model of prayer. Now, when it comes to the model of prayer, I, I lean on J.I. Packer here to understand how we approach God in prayer, and then I'll look at what it is that Jesus is teaching. J.I. Packer says that whenever it comes to prayer, there are seven things that we see happen that Jesus teaches us about this topic. First is that we approach God. That's very important. It sounds obvious, but that's not always the case, especially when we're invited to pray in front of people. Sometimes we're saying words for the benefit of those around us instead of understanding we're approaching God. So if we're to be truly prayer, we have to approach God. The second thing is that we have to acknowledge who God is. And so in approaching God, we're acknowledging who he is and all of his might and all of his majesty uh, before us. And then number three, we're admitting our sin. Whenever we approach God and we talk about who he is, we acknowledge who he is, obviously that shines light on who we are in front of him and it reveals that. Number four, Packer would say that then we ask. We are asking God for things, petitioning him for things. Number five, Packer would say we argue with God. And there he's referring to, you know, Joseph wrestling with the Lord, we see in Genesis. And that arguing back and forth is that, you know, kind of saying, but God, this is what I really want, but what do you really want? It's that conversation that takes place there. Uh, Number six would be, in prayer, we have to accept from God what it is that he brings into our life. And again, that's leaning on the fact that the things that happen in our life are not just by accident, but we're accepting our station or our place in life. And then number seven, Packer would say, we adhere faithfully. That whenever God reveals his will to us, we adhere to it, we submit our will to his will, and we faithfully move forward. Now, outside the mechanics of prayer, though, uh, I, I sat back and I asked the question, what is it that Jesus is teaching his followers here? What is he actually teaching them? And I think if you look at both the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and if you look at the Lord's Prayer here, I think there are a few things that are going on. Um, Yes, he is teaching them a prayer uh, that is a model in that sense. But what does that actually mean? A model of what? Of just how to say certain words? Well, it's a good question. Uh, I would say this. Number one, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray the redemptive story. He's teaching them to pray the narrative of the Old Testament, of Israel's story. Israel's story is about a father who is in heaven, who establishes his kingdom. He creates the world. And then he's the provider for Adam and Eve and everything that they need. And then sin enters the world. And all of a sudden they find that they need forgiveness and they need to learn how to forgive others. And then they find themselves in need of divine leading away from temptation so they don't go back and commit the same sins. And so in one sense, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, and you can even break it out further than that, you can look at the Lord's Prayer and it's tracking with the story of Israel over and over again. But not only that, I think what Jesus is doing is he's teaching the moral law. He's teaching them how to live the Ten Commandments. If you take the Ten Commandments and you look at the Lord's Prayer, you'll see that the Lord's Prayer starts with our Father, hallowed be your name. That's how Matthew does it. Uh, Our Father, hallowed be your name. And right there we see the first three commandments. Have no gods before me, right? No graven images, right? 
And do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And if God, if the Father is hallowed in our life, he's, if he's set apart as holy, then those three things are not going to happen. And then the next thing he prays for is our daily bread, which speaks to the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. Because when I trust that God is the one who provides my daily bread, I can rest. I don't have to work seven days a week. I can take a day of rest. And in that rest, I know that, yes, I could be working and producing, but I'm going to rest trusting that God is going to be the one that provides. And then he talks about forgiveness. Both I need to be forgiven and I need to learn how to forgive others. Well, what do we forgive? Well, we forgive the last five of the commandments, right? Honor your father and mother. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness and do not covet. Again, those are the main things that we need to be forgiven for, and those are the main things that we need to forgive others as well. And then he leads, with, uh, and then he ends with, um, "Do not lead us into temptation. Into temptation to what? To do the same five: mother and father, kill, adultery, steal, false witness, and covet." And so, in one sense, Jesus is teaching his disciples the whole story of Israel and the Lord's Prayer. In another sense, Jesus is teaching the disciples how to live the moral law of the Ten Commandments. But also there's a third sense that I think is very important and often missed. One of the things that we point out a lot about the Lord's Prayer is the corporate nature of the language, right? We say our Father, not just my Father, you know, and we, we see that word repeated over and over. But I think part of what we have to remember is that prayer is ministry. Just like prayer is teaching, it teaches us the story the redemptive story of Israel. It teaches us the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Prayer is also evangelism. And a part of what happens is that we are evangelizing while we may be praying for things for ourselves, corporately, as a body. We are also evangelizing because we are a corporate witness to the world. You see, whenever we say, Father, your name is hallowed here, there's something different among his people that you don't find in the world. And whenever we say, Father, your name is hallowed here in this place. We're going to set you apart as holy. We are pointing the world to the very existence of God. And we're saying, we're declaring, we believe that. We believe that there is a God. We believe that we can call him Father. And we believe that in this space, that's why we call it sacred space, here his name is set apart for us. Whenever we, um, whenever we pray, God, your kingdom come. Whenever we're praying for God's will. And the world looks on and they see us doing this and we're praying for this thing called a kingdom to come. We're praying for God's will in our life. We're praying for God's basilea, his domain, to be here. And whenever they see that in some way, when God breaks through and God answers prayer, again, it's a witness to the world. We are pointing them to a God who can do those things. Whenever we're praying for daily bread and we're asking God to provide our needs and then God actually shows up and provide our needs, uh, it, it's a witness. That provision is a witness to other people. And it points them to who this God is. And forgiveness, oh gracious. Whenever we pray for forgiveness, that we would be forgiven, that we would be better forgivers of other people, uh, that, that's humanity's greatest need. Because the church is the people of forgiveness. You don't get this kind of forgiveness anywhere else in the world, right? It's only found here because it's only found in Jesus. Therefore, it's only found among his people. And you're talking about a, a witness. Wow. This idea of forgiveness. And then, of course... We see it with temptation. We're the people who are supposed to live in complete peace because we believe in future prospering. We believe that God is going to continue to lead us and guide us as we go through life. And He can actually lead us not into temptation corporately as a body. 
And so it's a corporate witness too whenever we pray these kind of prayers or pray these aspects of this prayer and then when God shows up and answer, the world is supposed to look on and say, why is your life as a group different than ours? Why does that system seem to work when our systems that we try to create in the government and in the world that's supposed to fix everything does not work? But not only is Jesus teaching his disciples to pray the redemptive story, to pray the moral law, to pray corporately, to be a corporate witness, this also has a very personal aspect to it because this kind of prayer that Jesus is teaching them to pray builds their personal faith. It builds their personal faith. And it builds their faith because every line of the Lord's Prayer is absolutely livable. It is livable. Like God can actually be my Father. And His name can actually be hallowed or set apart in my life. Right? Like God's kingdom can be breaking into my life, into my house, into my home. That can actually happen. Like God can actually provide for my daily needs. He can do that. God can actually forgive my sins. Like in reality, in time and space, something can happen in eternity where I am eternally forgiven for what I've done here. Not only that, God can actually lead us to forgive other people of their sins, no matter the sin. Is it easy? Lord, no. But that's why it's divine. God can actually lead us not into temptation. When we pray these kind of prayers, it builds our personal faith because the Lord's prayer is actually livable for us. And so as Jesus is teaching his disciples this, and again, we get but a snapshot of it. And when Jesus is teaching his disciples this, he begins to elaborate. And he elaborates and he gives basically three illustrations or points or principles, however you want to put that. First is one about persistence. The second is about promise. And the third is about personhood. Yes, I alliterated them. I thought it sounded good. But the first one about persistence that we see here is in verses 5 through 8. He says this. After giving them the model prayer, he says, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. Notice the word journey. And, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed. And boy, if you wake them up, we're going to have a problem. Okay, that's not in there. <laughs> but he may have a problem. Anyway, I cannot get up and give you anything. He says, I tell you, though he will not give up, get up and give him anything because he is a friend, not just on the basis of friendship. He says, yet because of his persistence, that's what the word impudence means, his persistence will, he will rise and give him whatever he needs, simply because he is persistent in asking for this. Now, I think to understand this and to understand our role in persistent prayer, I think we've got to understand the context that's going on here. And in the first century, if someone, if a neighbor got up, even if it was in the middle of the night, and they came to you and they were asking for help, they, they, and they said this situation, this scenario, someone has traveled, they've been on a journey, they've arrived to my house, and yes, we know it's very late, but they've arrived to my house, and so I need some bread to give them. The neighbor would actually get up and give them the bread. They would. They would get up and give them the bread. And you got to remember, this is a shame honor culture. And so one of the things, one of the reasons why the neighbor would give them the bread is not just because they're nice. What, in giving them the bread, they're helping their neighbor who just had a friend arrive. 
they're helping them uh, not bring shame on their family by not being able to provide for the one on the journey. And remember, they're not stopping by the gas station or Starbucks on their way, right? And so they arrive, they're tired, they're hungry, they're thirsty, they need something. He says, I don't have anything. The neighbor helps him out because he's helping him not bring shame on his family. And he's helping him because one day he may be in the same situation. He may have to go to the neighbor and say, now I need some bread, right? And so this is something very common in the first century. As Jesus is talking about this, the disciples would understand it. But, he, but Jesus in the story is emphasizing the persistence there. And a lot of times I think we, we ask the question, you know, well, if God is so good, why do I need to keep asking for things? Right? Why do I need to be persistent? Can I not just ask one time and then God do the very thing I ask? You know, what's the deal with this persistence? Well, when it comes to persistence, I think we have to re- remember that when we are persistent in prayer, the first thing it does is that it increases our patience and it kills our pride. Persistent prayer makes us patient over time. And I know that no one likes patience and no one likes to be patient. We don't live in a patient patient culture. And of course the saying in church is never pray for patience because God will give it to you, right? But in persistent prayer with God not immediately answering because God's not a genie in a bottle who does that, in God not answering, it actually makes us more patient, increases our patient, but patience, but it also kills our pride. Not only that, it increases our trust in God and in His will, and it, tr- and it kills our self-reliance. And the truth is, if, if we're being really honest, all of us are pretty self-reliant. You know, we think, I, I do this for myself, I did this for myself, I make money for myself, I pull myself up by my bootstraps, and you've got to remember you can never say that to God, because He'd just look back at you and say... I created bootstraps, right? So being persistent in prayer, continuing to go to God, says we trust in His will, it kills our will, and it shows this increased dependency on God over and over again. Now Jesus will say something about answering prayer here in just a moment. And what Jesus is saying to His disciples here, He says, guys, you know how to help your neighbor, and they know how to help you. But be persistent, keep praying, because God wants to help you infinitely more than your neighbor will. And infinitely more than your neighbor wants to help you. Because remember, while the neighbor goes over, he says, oh, leave me alone, don't bother me, it's too tired, I've already got the kids in the bed. One of the things that, one of the points that Jesus is making is that the father will never say, don't bother me. He'll never say, well, the door's already closed, I can't open it. He will never say, you know, well, here's an excuse right? The kids are already in bed. And he will never say, I cannot give you anything. Which are all the first responses to the man in the parable. But through persistence in prayer, what God does is he prepares us to receive the answer to the thing in which we are praying for. So as Jesus gives this model, the first thing he says, I want you to be persistent in prayer. God wants to answer it. He has to prepare you to receive the answer to the prayer you're praying for. Number two is the promise. We see the promise here in verses 9 and 10. It says, uh, I tell you to ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who, receive, uh, everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks will find. And the one who knocks, it will be open. Very definite language here. Now, we all know that God always answers prayer. He always answers prayer. He just does not always answer it in the timing that we want or give us the answer that we want, right? But in this ask, seek, knock, 
I think this progression here is, is very important. Uh, we do know in the Greek language it is continuous language. You know, this is something we are constantly doing. We're asking, we're seeking, or knocking. But also notice that it's journey language. It's travel language. He just gave a parable or a short story here about the persistence about someone who is on a journey. And so he, I think he continues to use this journey language about asking, about seeking, and about knocking. So it's, if you've been issued an invitation, we'll say by God or somebody else, and they say, hey, I want you to come to my house. I want you to come and live with me. Or I want you to come and visit me or whatever it may be. The first thing you ask is, where's your house? And then when they tell you where the house is, what do you do? You seek. You go walking and looking for it, right? And then what is the third thing you do? You show up and you knock. And in knocking, you are announcing the fact that you are here, so either you can go in or they can come out. And Jesus says, as we're on this journey, as we're going through life, this is part of what we're going to be doing. It is a journey that we're on. We're going to be asking, we're going to be seeking, we're going to be knocking. And everyone who asks will receive. Will receive what? Well, just like if someone invites you to their house and you ask them, where is it? They're going to reveal their location, right? They're going to give you a revelation. Revelation is just new information. They're going to reveal something to you. So when we ask, we will receive. And the thing we receive is revelation from God. Whenever we seek, we will find. We will find, right? Whenever you're seeking something, you're walking, you're looking. You're looking for the location. You're going along the path. The word path in the Bible is synonymous with God's will. So whenever we ask, we will receive. We're going to receive revelation. Whenever we seek, we will find. We will find the path. We will find God's will that we need to be on. And whenever you knock, the door will be open. And whenever the door is open to the person who invited you over, what does that mean? It means now you are in their presence. Now you are in their presence. So again, I think the journey language is important because when you ask, you will receive revelation. Whenever you seek, you will find the path. You will find God's will. Whenever you knock, it will be opened. You will now be in God's presence. And again, the point Jesus is making here is what this is what you get in prayer. What you get is God's revelation. What you get is God's will. What you get is God's presence in prayer. And what he's not saying is that you always get for what you, what you ask for. But what he is saying is, I can promise you, what you will get is God will reveal something to you. God will reveal his will to you, the path that you are to walk on, and you will get God himself, his presence in your life because of these type of prayers. That's the promise that he's giving them. The third point is personhood. Personhood. Verse 11 through 13, he says, What father, notice he uses the image of father, earthly father, what father among you, if he has sons who ask for fish, or ask, uh, has a son who asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts, that's the key word, to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. You see, the good gift, the, the word good in the first century is synonymous with godly. Remember, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You would never call someone good unless you're willing to call him God. And so how much more will your heavenly father give you good gifts, godly gifts, gifts that are good for you, gifts that come from him, gifts that are only a blessing and never a curse? That's what the Father gives to us. But He gives it to us, again, personhood, because He is the Father. Because He is the Father. 
And the greatest answer that the Father can give to any prayer is to give Himself. That's why He gives the Holy Spirit. The greatest answer God can give to any prayer that we pray is Himself. Again, verse 13 is why He gives the Holy Spirit. Because with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes from God. And with the Holy Spirit, everything that is shareable about God now resides in us. There are some attributes of God that are not shareable. You cannot be omnipresent. But there are a lot of attributes about God, His nature and His character, that are shareable with us. And whenever the Holy Spirit resides in us, all of those shareable attributes are present and they reside within us. That's why he says, how much, how much more will the Father give His very presence to you if you ask Him? Because that is the answer that we always need. The most important word in this prayer is the word Father. The very first one. Most important word. And understanding Father is to understand that it's the Father through the Son that gives the Holy Spirit, but yet it's the Holy Spirit again through the Son that takes us to the Father. And Jesus rarely really talked about calling God Father to the multitudes. He talked to the multitudes 17 times in the Gospels, but he talks about it quite a bit with his disciples and as he prays before them. And I think a part of that is because there has to be relational reconciliation in order to call God Father. There has to be that relationship, the intimate relationship I talked about earlier, in order to refer to God as Father, because you're referring to the creator of the universe as your particular Father. Throughout Christianity, there's been a historic uh, conversation, a historic question asked. And the question, and those of you who have any dealings or have ever been in a Pentecostal church will understand this question. And the question is, what is the initial sign that a person has the Holy Spirit? And there are a lot of debates about that, right? A lot of ink's been spilled over that particular question. But I think the answer to the question is found in Romans chapter 8. What is the initial sign? How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? Romans 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And don't get thrown off by the word son. You may be sitting there going, well, I'm female, I'm a daughter. No, son means legal heir. There's no male, female, Jew, Greek, right? Slave free. We're all heirs with Christ. And so son means you're a legal heir. So those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, a legal heir of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We don't like that last line, I know. But if you go back, it says, by the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. I think that is the initial sign that the Holy Spirit truly resides in you. That you finally get to call God by the name He created you to call Him by. Father. The one name that Jesus loved to refer to God as over and over again. Now when we get to do that, when we get to do that, that means the Holy Spirit 
is alive and well in us. And we've asked and he has given. Amen? Amen. Sorry for going long. We're going to take communion in just a second, but let's pray. Father, thank you that we can call you Father. I pray that as we go throughout our week and as we take moments to close our eyes, bow our heads and kneel before you, that we would cherish the privilege of starting our prayers with Father. Help us do so in Jesus' name. Amen.